Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening to Creative Control. Uh, while I have you here, please consider supporting Youth Empowerment and Support Services, otherwise known as YES. Based in Edmonton, Alberta, YES provides immediate and low-barrier overnight and day shelter, temporary supportive housing, and individualized wraparound supports for young people aged 15 to 24. They work collaboratively within a network of care focused on the prevention of youth homelessness by providing youth with the necessary supports to stabilize their housing, improve their well-being, build life skills, connect with community, and avoid re-entry into homelessness. Learn more about how to donate or otherwise support YES by visiting YESS.org. Hello, fellow Creative Control listeners. My name is Mac Cameron. I live in Toronto, and I have been listening to Creative Control with Vish Khanna since episode 119. That featured all five members of one of my favorite bands, Constantine's. I listen backwards from there and then forwards, and I know it sounds, you know, over the top or cliche, but finding the show changed the course of my life. It inspired me to pursue a career in radio and to do what I can to support the arts in my community and across the country. So I give to Creative Control because I feel like I owe the show and Vish uh, for helping me figure out what the hell to do with my life. Beyond that, I give to Creative Control because I think independent media, especially insightful, entertaining, thoughtful, and thorough independent media is something that is worth paying for. What I appreciate about Creative Control is Vish's ability to treat Canadian artists, or any artist for that matter, with the seriousness and appreciation he would any other artist. His excellent rapport with people like Steve Albini and the members of Fugazi and Stephen Malcolmus and others have earned him international appreciation. However, it's his trove of interviews with what I consider to be the most exciting generation of Canadian musicians conducted out of genuine passion and interest that makes this show so special. I think it is an archive of some really exciting music that is way, way underreported on and appreciated. That's why I contribute to Creative Control with Vishkana, and I hope you will do the same. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. I'm Visha's wife, and I will love him no matter what you do. And now he has me on the record saying that. Richard Thompson is a legendary musician, songwriter, and singer based in the state of New Jersey. Originally from London, England, Thompson was a member of the band Fairport Convention, in which he helped spearhead a renewed interest in British folk traditions that revolutionized rock music in the late 1960s. In his subsequent work as a solo artist and in partnership with his ex-wife Linda, Richard Thompson continued to redefine what impassioned guitar playing, introspective lyricism, and commanding vocals could be. On April 6, 2021, Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill published Thompson's first book, co-written with the late Scott Timberg. The beautiful memoir is entitled Beeswing, Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, 1967 to 1975. Richard and I connected recently for an extensive discussion about touring the United States in the late pandemic summer of 2021 
his thoughts on older musicians speaking out about public health issues, how Fairport Convention and punk bands each dealt with reality in their respective work, his relationship with Bob Dylan as a fan and colleague, his time working with Jeff Tweedy of Wilco, his view of classic albums like I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight and Shoot Out the Lights, the standing of guitars in modern music, future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash Control with additional support from Blackbird Music, a well-stocked record store with locations in Edmonton and Calgary, and friendly staff who will happily help you source special orders for hard-to-find titles, which you can learn more about at blackbird.ca, plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planted Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is the 634th episode of Creative Control, featuring the legendary, lovely, and talented Richard Thompson, with your host, me, Vishkana. Hi, Richard. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Nice to talk to you, Vish. Nice to talk to you. It's a it's a great honor. First of all, where in the world are you? I'm in. Where am I? I'm in uh, Old Saybrook, uh, Connecticut, uh, USA. Interesting. Now, uh, from what I understand, uh, based on my knowledge of your website, you are on tour right now. How is that going? Well, it's going great. You know, I, I think for a lot of the audiences, uh, this is the first time that they've been out for 18 months, two years. So they're excited to see some live music. I'm excited to play for them. You know, I'm just just getting back into it myself. I've only done a few shows, um, you know, in the last uh, 18 months myself. So it, it's actually great. Um, it's wonderful to be back doing my job again. I know from uh, having read your book now uh, a couple of times that... Uh, Live music, playing live music, the interaction, the connection with people is of the utmost importance to you. Uh, what was it like not being able to do that for these uh, 18 months or so? And within that, what did you do? How did you <laughs> occupy your time? And, mm. and you know, uh, were you able to connect with people in other ways? It was a difficult time, but, uh, but we were able to do some streaming uh, performances. I probably did quite a lot, actually. And that was great to be able to have that connection with the audience and, and to be able to perform even though uh, you didn't really get an immediate response. Um, that The response was, you know, in the chat column or something, people say, oh, you know, that was great, thank you. But it's not quite the same as having people uh, applaud uh, or, you know, you could see people enjoying the music. So that, 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 that was a bit different. And I think, uh, I think everyone's had enough of the virtual uh, performance by now. And uh, everyone wants to get back to the live thing. Um, what did I do? Well, what did I do? I did lots of things. I did a lot of writing, which was great. So I, I wrote and released a couple of EPs, uh, six-track EPs. Uh, and I wrote the next band album and wrote some other things. Uh, so, so I was actually very busy. Plus, I had the advantage of having a home studio, so I, I could uh, write stuff and then record it and, and release it. So, you know, it's a difficult time and a busy time at the same time. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, different. That's remarkable. I've talked to artists who have told me various things about how they've managed uh, this stillness, if you will. Some have said they've been so, I guess, depressed <laughs> uh, that yeah. they haven't been able to write you had the opposite. You were very prolific during this time, it sounds like. Yeah. I thought it was important, you know, to, to really have a, a kind of an upbeat routine, you know, to keep exercising uh, every day, uh, to keep working every day. I, I think at the end of 18 months, I, I was getting a bit of brain fog. I, I was feeling a, a bit ground down, if you like, by the, uh, you know, the, the routine of, uh, of not being able to, uh, to be on the road. You know, eventually I think it got me, but 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 for the most part, I I, I really tried to uh, stay positive. Yeah, absolutely. Is it possible? So you've played a few shows now. As we're speaking, you've played a handful of shows, like a few shows, right, on this tour. Is that right? Yeah, uh, we've probably done five or six by now. Yes, five or six. Okay. Can you characterize the mood? I assume it's a lot of joy. Uh, you know, celebrations for being 
back together? Is there any reticence? Is there any like <laughs> from you? You know, coming from the stage. By the way, I've neglected to ask: Are you with a band right now, or are you on your own? Uh, this is just solo. Um, it's still slightly impractical to to be on the road with the band, but right. uh, you right. know the mood. Right. The mood has been really uh, upbeat. Um, you, you know, a great response when I walk on stage because uh, people are just thrilled to be there. They're, they're, they're thrilled to have that 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 musical experience. You know, uh, I, I think uh, you know if there's any negativity, uh, it's really before I get on stage, and, and it's more to do with. What's the the the, uh, the COVID code for the venue? You know, is the venue saying you have to wear a mask? Is the venue saying you have to be vaccinated? So that there's kind of politics behind the scene that, that I don't necessarily see, uh, and I don't have my own uh, policy in that way. It's really venue by venue, right? So there's a bit of that that going on before people decide if they're going to go to the show, if, if they decide, um, you know, how they're going to be um, in the audience. Um, but once the show starts rolling, I mean, it, it's really great. It's, it's incredibly positive and upbeat. I think people are just very excited to uh, to be there. Yeah, I can see that for sure. I appreciate that you don't have your own policy. It's up to the venues. That seems in line with my perception of, of your way of thinking. There are people uh, of your generation, public figures, musicians, uh, as we're speaking, Eric Clapton's in the news, Van Morrison has been in the news, a bit older than you in some cases, yeah. or, or what, what have you. They've come out, they've made their, their statements, they've taken some flack. What do you make of what they've said? Not even I'm not looking for your opinion necessarily, but the fact, like, is this a British thing? Is this an Irish thing? <laughs> to say, you know, screw yeah. it, screw everything, everyone can make up their own mind. Do you relate to what they're saying in any way? I can see where they're coming from, but but I don't necessarily agree with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I think some people are almost taking a political stance. I don't, I don't think public health should ever be political. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, you know, I, I'm inclined to, to think well, the experts, the health experts, know what they're doing. Uh, they're, they're giving the best advice they can. Uh, we should follow it. Uh, on the, the other hand, I mean, you know, I, I appreciate people want to have their personal freedom and all that, but when your freedom pinches on, pinches on someone else's freedom, then there has to be some mitigation somewhere. So uh, yeah. I'm just hoping that, that, that uh, if, if we're all sensible and uh, we get through this thing uh, in the next few months and, and out the other side, it's, it's my hope. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you speaking on that. I ask partially because I've been so immersed in your book, Beeswing, that mm -hmm. I feel... Like I've been, it's like a travelogue of sorts. I feel like I've been transported to England. I feel, having read your book a couple of times, I feel a little more English. Does that resonate with you? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I hope so. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think uh, you know, it has it has to be my version of events. You know, it has to be that the world's seen through my eyes at that time. Uh, you know, the, the time frame for the book is uh, sixty seven to seventy five, and and. Um, you know, it was a very interesting time in the UK, especially for music. You know, it was a real coming together of different threads of, of style and technology. All these things kind of collided. And, and I was very fortunate to be really at the center of it, to, to be in London at that time, you know, um, to be a teenager growing up in London when the Beatles uh, first appeared and, and then to be a, a performing musician from 67 onwards, you know, playing with with Pink Floyd and Hendrix and all, all these other people, you know. It, it was great to be really at the epicenter or one of the epicenters of, of music at that time. And I suppose we never thought uh, that that generation w would be influential, but, but it seems that, uh, you know, people are still wearing their, their Led Zeppelin T-shirts and, and their Rolling Stones T-shirts. I mean, it's a strange thing, you know, my my, my grandkids are still listening to Sgt. Pepper and Dark Side of the Moon. I mean, it's it's a strange thing that, 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 uh, <laughs> that the influence has, la has lasted so long. Uh, so I, I just thought it was an important time to write about. Absolutely, and I, I'm going to be careful not to spoil anything uh, about the book for those who haven't read it yet, and we ho I hope we entice people to read it. But mm. you mentioned a few names there, Pink Floyd, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin. But these are people like you, it's, it's not that just that you were in the room with them. In a lot of cases, you were, these were your actual peers, your colleagues, people you jammed with. That's right, isn't it? Uh, that's true, yeah. Um, well, it was strange, you know, from going to see these bands, uh, you know, when I was at school, and then just a couple of years later, we're, we're actually on the bill with them. You know, we're, we're actually playing alongside these people. Or we're in a club and, you know, Jimi Hendrix gets up and jams with us or something. You know, this was, uh, 
um, a very quick immersion uh, into the music scene at that time, into the sort of the psychedelic uh, music scene. So it's uh, yeah, very exciting stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's magical, and it's and you write about it so vividly that I, again, I feel transported there. Um, and I want to get into your motivations for writing this book in a moment. But first of all, just the title alone. Uh, you mentioned you just mentioned that the book covers your. It's it's subtitled as covering your songwriting life, I suppose, uh, between 1967 and 1975. Having read the book, I know that it covers more than just that. Beeswing is a song you released in 1994. Mm -hmm. It's also a name that I believe you've employed for your songwriting publishing. So I'm just curious. I just want to home in on that. What is the significance of Beeswing as a phrase to you to to title this book Beeswing? when the song in question didn't even emerge for around 20 more years after, <laughs> you know, 1975. I'm just curious, why does that phrase stand out for you? Uh, Beeswing is a tiny little village in, in Scotland, uh, very close to, to, to where my family came from. Uh, so, so I've always had that, that name in my head. And uh, when I wrote the song, in, 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 as you say, in the 90s, it just seemed to, to me to, to encapsulate some of the spirits of the 60s, you know, people were kind of dropping out of society. Uh, a lot of people I knew at school didn't kind of fulfill their academic ambitions. Uh, they really just dropped out and became drug dealers and, and God knows what and, and kind of went into an alternative lifestyle. Uh, and it just seemed to be a time for that. And I think the song Beeswing um, talks about, uh, if you like, voluntary and involuntary falling through the, the, the safety net of society. Yeah. yeah and, and, and I think that, that that was a real 60s thing. The, the, certainly, uh, it struck me that way, and, and, and that seemed to be a reflection of the kind of people I knew and, and the kind of society that I moved in, that was people really looking for something else. Uh, and it was, um, you know, it, it was a sociological thing, it was a political thing, and it was a spiritual thing as well. There was a lot of spiritual seeking at that time. Yeah. Uh, some of it was, you know, uh, questionable, but but some of it, I think there was real value in it. Did you, like, I mean, and through the course of this book, I'm sure you've, you know, you've had an opportunity to reflect upon who you were uh, in this time frame, obviously. Are you surprised by just how much of, like, an outsider you seem to be and want to be? From what I can understand, uh, you know, reading uh, about, you know the lives of uh, you know poets and and filmmakers and authors and everything. I mean they're all outsiders. Yeah. You, you know they're, they're all slightly removed from society. They're they're just on on the edge of it and, and they're looking inwards. And I, I think that's the only way you really have perspective on it. So it's to almost feel yourself that like a bit of an alien. You know so so that yeah uh, you, you know you're not you're not totally involved um, in that way. You know there's a part of you that can hold back and, and can comment hmm. on uh, what you see and, and what you feel. Uh, I think it's very important to be an outsider. Do you still feel like an outsider? I do, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I still feel that I don't fit. I, I, ne I never felt like, like I fitted um, anywhere, really. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. No, I, I, I can appreciate that. So let's get into the, the why now. Uh, what motivated you to write uh, Beeswing at this point in your life. I was alluding to the pandemic earlier, and I know that the stillness has prompted people to reflect, maybe take on projects just as just like this one. But I gather just from the timeline that that's not the case for you. It wasn't that you were like, well, I've got nothing else to do. I might as well write about my life. When did mm -hmm. you start writing this book, and why did you start writing this book? Well, I probably started a, a good year before the pandemic kicked in. So, so it was basically written... Uh, and w w was really into the editing process uh, during the pandemic. So, and, and that can take a while, you know, going backwards and forwards with editors. Um, uh, why did I write it? Um, um, <laughs> it seemed like an interesting thing to do. As I said, I mean, people do ask me about that time period. And people have said, you know, why don't you write a book? And, and uh, why don't you do it about this time? And I, I think as a first attempt at a book, I, I think this was absolutely the time period to choose because it was very condensed. A lot happened in that short space of time. And it was a time when, um, you, know, you know, I and, and the band, you know, Fairport were, were doing stuff for the first time. You know, so, so we're playing a show in Bradford or, or wherever, or Manchester, and it's the first time that we've been there. So you, your recollections are very vivid of, of that first time. Once you've done it the fifth time, the sixth time, the tenth time, there's less to write about. 
Right. But, but, but everything was fresh. You know, g- g- going to America was fresh. So, so there's all this fresh stuff uh, hitting you all the time. Like every day there's a new experience. So, um, you know, it's great to write, write about about that stuff. And, and um, you know, I, I think also it, it just is not a terrible thing to contribute yet, yet another view of the 60s into, into the 70s uh, because it was such a fertile time. You know, it's, it's almost like you, you need more social history as well uh, as, yeah. as just straight but you know straightforward history you, you need more people's accounts of, of uh, what that was like and how it went down are there particular misconceptions about that time that place that were on your mind that you thought you know people think it was this i kind of as an eyewitness as a participant i can kind of dispel some of these misconceptions i can clarify <laughs> some things was any of that swimming around in your head as you talked about yourself and your life and and fairport convention and and the sort of scene at the time were you was that on your mind at all i wasn't really thinking about it at the time um in retrospect uh, i can say that probably the most standout um thing that was probably um the lack of money you know people think uh, you know if you're a musician you must be rolling in money and uh, very few actually were I think we were mostly impoverished, really. Uh, you know, we were living hand to mouth pretty much. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Fairport were on, uh, you know, a very minimal weekly wage. There were lots of bands that weren't on a wage at all, and, and they were poorer than we were. People lived in squats, you know, that they lived in, in like terrible housing situations. But, you know, once they got on stage, you know, that they looked, you know, suitably. You know, you know, uh, glamorous and iconic, <laughs> but uh, it was a tough grind, uh, and it, it, it took another year or two before bands like you know Pink Floyd and the Who, you know, uh, became stadium bands. You know, but became huge and, and extremely rich. In 1967, um, everybody was basically hand to mouth. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned this because your book, because of the era you cover, your book ends as punk in England is gestating. And in the book, you mention the Sex Pistols and the Damned releasing singles, and I, I feel like in a in a brief way, you suggested it was quite invigorating to hear this kind of music. Were you a fan of those types of bands and what they were talking about in terms of what it was like to actually live in England at the time? I thought it was a breath of fresh air. I think you know, as we went further into the seventies, you know, seventy three, seventy four, seventy five. It was glam rock, it was, it was metal, uh, and it, it was uh, prog rock, and none, none of which I really cared for. Yeah. Um, and, and I thought, you know, rock and roll is just recycling, or it's becoming pretentious, or it's becoming bombastic. You know, the, the, the old values have gone away. You know, uh, what's going on? Well, what am I going to do? I mean, that, that was my big question. You know, where do I fit into the, you know, the, the evolving music scene, and, um, and what am I going to do? Yeah. Um, and then, then the, the the punks came along, you know, the Sex Pistols, the Buzzcocks, who were a great band. Uh, and I thought, ah, oh, okay, th- this is the energy that we need. You know, uh, it, it, this is getting back to what rock and roll does best, which is basically, um, you know, three chords and you, you know, b- b- bass drum guitar. That, that's all you need. It's, it's like the the Elvis Sun sessions. Yeah, you know, that, that's real rock and roll. Buddy Holly, that's real rock and roll. Uh, and uh, and and you know, the, I, I saw punk as as really getting back to that kind of route to, to you know nineteen fifty five fifty six uh, version of, of, of rock and roll. And I thought this is great. Uh, th- this shows me what I should be doing. I, I should be getting back to the same basic idea and. Uh, not even flirt with things like prog rock or you know or, or metal or glam rock or any, any of that stuff. You know that's another world now. Yeah, that, that I should have nothing to do with. You know, I, I should go back to to the roots of it all. You're talking about punk on an aesthetic level, and you're kind of I think you're homing in on sort of its sonic qualities. Mm. Uh, but one of the things that has always resonated with me about punk is that it seemed to reflect reality. Uh, you mentioned that when Fairport was going. Uh, in the early days in particular, you were living in poverty, and that's reflected in this book. Do you feel like, and and when I listen to Fairport, it feels whimsical. It feels sort of timeless, whereas punk was like, this is now. This is what's happening now. Mm. Do you feel, and and I'm not trying to, Fairport is obviously, it's a a long legacy. Every record was different. Do you feel like Fairport reflected reality in, in a way that, or was it an idealized reality, peace, love, <laughs> you know, a lot of the 60s ideals? Or did you feel like Fairport actually was reflecting 
the grind that you describe and reality for so many people from from England and in that area? Um, I don't think that we did particularly re reflect um, that kind of reality. I, I think, uh, you know, Fairport's mission, if you like, was to reconnect popular music, you know, rock, rock music with, you know, British traditions. Uh, and uh, and some of those were industrial uh, and some were pastoral. Yeah. Uh, and and so I, I think in Fairport you you find a lot lot of um, you, you know pastoral music a kind of an Edwardian Victorian uh, pre-Victorian you know Georgian worldview, and, and that was really just a byproduct of, product of us taking old songs and trying to revive them. Yeah. Maybe we should have done more industrial gritty songs of which there were plenty. <laughs> Um, for some reason, but we didn't really choose those. Uh, yeah. but, 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 you know, I, th I think perhaps we should have chosen more of that kind of stuff, you know, because, um, it was important and, and politically would have been more, um, more apt really for Fairport to do that stuff. So, so um, if I have to apologize for Fairport in, in, in any sense, then I'd apologize for being a bit too, a bit too, uh, a bit too bucolic, a bit, a bit too pastoral in our, music choices but uh you know that wasn't really who we were we were just trying to, to make this connection well first of all i was not uh uh trying to provoke an apology fairport convention is a wonderful wonderful entity hugely influential i talked to so many young artists who still cite fairport as a massive influence and it's it's very significant mm. you did leave the band i think for creative differences i mean that's what my vibe is from reading your book is that fair it just was going in a place that you didn't feel like was you is that right i love creative differences it, it covers um uh, a multitude of, of sins uh, really um, it's a great great it's, it's a great catch-all phrase um yeah i, I think musical differences I, I i think i was also just burned out I, i've been in bands since i was 11 really 11 or 12 years old yeah uh, and i just wanted to do something on my own i wanted to, to concentrate on 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 writing on my own and kind of b b being my own boss for a while really so i think it was burnout i think also um the effects of the, of the accident that we had uh, that killed our drummer. Yeah. I think we were all traumatized for that for a couple of years uh, and we weren't making good decisions. Uh, and I, I, perhaps I, I made a bad decision. I don't know. Well, I mean, at the time, the band was, I think, from based on your telling, it was seemingly coming into its own. However, the live show was a little erratic and, and some members, uh, did, I don't know, they were just playing too fast <laughs> or not on the same team, on the same page. You were known as a band that did a lot of covers initially, particularly of, I think at the time, obscure Bob Dylan songs, among others. And yeah. and then there was this movement towards getting back to that, just as you thought you were the band was finally finding its creative voice. Have I encapsulated that well enough for you? Yeah, I think so. I, I, well, Fairport went through stages. Um, you know, we, we did, as you say, we started out as a covers band, um, but we like to do, um, you know, non-obvious covers. So if we were going to do a Dylan song, well, we'd find the most obscure Dylan song that we could. Um, we, we love the, the singer-songwriters. Uh, uh, we were very early into Joni Mitchell, in, into uh, Leonard Cohen, into Richard Farina. And then, uh, you know, we started to evolve as, as writers, and, and so we wanted to, to, to be performing our the songs that we had written ourselves. And then we wanted to be um, reconnecting with uh, British folk traditions. And so that, that became our focus. And then uh, probably at the point where I left the band, I, I was thinking, well, you know, we, we should be writing more and playing less traditional music. So I think I wanted the freedom to, to do that at, at that point. Yeah. Well, where do, you, where do you see the influence of the music you made with Fairport Convention and, and, on, and on your own from the era covered in the book? Where do you see... The influence of your work the most do you see it in contemporary music did you see it in the immediate aftermath or or as the band was existing or i'm just wondering if you can characterize that like i say i talked to lots of people who talk about you and fairport and and richard if i may you in particular there's a lot of love and admiration for you and the work you've done on your own do you have a sense of that do you see your influence and in all the work you've done do you see it in contemporary music um, absolutely not. <laughs> I really don't. Um, I, I, I wouldn't have a clue. I mean, I, I wouldn't recognize it if, if you kind of pointed me at it. I, I just wouldn't wouldn't know. Um, That's fascinating. So, That's uh, fascinating. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, no, don't. No, it's it's yeah. fascinating. I mean, there are people in my sort of friend group milieu, if you will, 
who see like I want to see the bright lights tonight, the record you made with Linda Thompson, as like a forebearer to punk, you know, as as like the way forward and shoot out the lights as well. Like these particular records. By the way, how do you feel about? Uh, am I? I invoke those two because for some strange reason, I suppose, beyond the fact that they're genius records, are you aware of that? There's a certain mystique around those two records of yours in particular? Well, I mean, I think they're good records. Uh, I think uh, I think Bright Lights is, is a really good record, and I listen to it occasionally and think, wow, that, that really worked. Yeah, You know, you can go in the studio and, and you can have the best intentions and think you've got the best collection of songs, and, you know, you make the record and, and this goes wrong and that goes wrong and, and you can't quite crack this song and maybe, maybe you've got the wrong drummer for, for the film. You know, the, the, the things can just um, conspire against you making a good record. And, and that does happen quite a lot. Uh, with Bright Light, we, everything just went so well. You know, everything that we recorded worked. Uh, we got th- three days. You know, it, it cost, I think, £2,500 at the time. Even at the time, that was like peanuts. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and um, to me, it still sounds really good, you know. So, so that was lucky. I, I shoot out the lights. I, I have issues with the way it sounds. But I think it's a great collection of songs. And I still perform many of those songs um, to this day. So if, if, you, if, if people, you know, like those records, then I'm very happy about that. I think that's great. Okay, but you're not, you're not hearing it per se. You're not, you're not hearing from people directly that, you know, oh my God, like if it wasn't, or reading about it. Like I know uh, a friend of mine, uh, someone I admire, Will Oldham, massive fan of yours. And, and the more people dig into your catalog, I think... Uh, fans of Wills, I mean, as Bonnie Prince Billy or whatever, mm. the more you kind of, if you're a fan of Wills and then you listen to your catalog, you're like, oh, this is maybe where Will is coming from. Are you aware of him? Are you aware of people like him who have kind of cited your work? I see. Uh, well, I know, I know him. Uh, he, he he did some duet stuff with with my daughter, Cammie. So uh, I, know, I know him. I've met him. Uh, seems like a nice guy. I, I wouldn't know if, if there's any influence there whatsoever, I, I really wouldn't. <laughs> Couldn't tell you. Okay. okay. So you kind of exist. You're. It's because you're an outsider, Richard. I think that's what it is. You, you, you live well, well, plus, outside I mean, of the praise even, it seems. I suppose so. But plus, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of busy. I, I haven't got time to think about <laughs> who's influenced who or all that sort of stuff. You know, I, I just have to get, get on with what I'm doing and, and it, it, it takes most of my time. Yeah, fair enough. Speaking of influences, we, we both mentioned Bob Dylan. I saw you perform in Toronto on the 2013 Americanorama Tour. Oh. Uh, and for those who don't know, it was, it, it was wonderful. What a, uh, for me, I'll, I'll, I'll just let people know. So that tour, or that show that I saw anyway, featured you, Richard. It featured um, uh, Wilco, uh, My Morning Jacket, and Bob Dylan. And then there was a jam session at the end, which the people in Wilco had told me I'd done an interview with some of them before the show. And they said, yeah, we haven't, none of us have interacted with Dylan at all. And then I saw you, uh, I saw this gathering happen on stage and I understood that that was the first time and, and there were some songs performed and it was wonderful. Do you have fond memories of that tour or even that show in Toronto in particular? It was a, uh, it was a strange tour. Um, you know, we, we were opening, you know, the whole thing. So we were going on at 5.30 p.m. <laughs> when, you know, a quarter of the audience had turned up at that point. So that, that was a little strange, you know, playing in these, you know, um, minor league baseball stadiums yeah. to a small audience. But it was fun. and It was great hanging out with Wilco. You know, I, I did lots of jamming with Wilco. That was a lot of fun. I met Dylan, which was lovely. I've I met him before, but we had a nice conversation on that tour. Um, that was lovely. And it was uh, it was great, yeah. And I got paid as well, so it was fantastic. <laughs> you have, had you, have you only met him uh, on a couple of occasions, Mr. Dylan? Uh, yeah, t- uh, two times, yeah. Okay, and, and uh, I know he appears in the book briefly uh, <laughs> at a show, but things don't go well. Uh, as I recall, he slips out of the room. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I, I think uh, I was playing with Sandy. Um, if you don't know Sandy Denny, the, the, then she's a just a, was a wonderful uh, British singer songwriter. Um, yeah. And uh, we were playing uh, New York. I think it was the bottom line. Uh, no, it wasn't the bottom line. It was uh, which one was it? Anyway, I, I forget where we were. And uh, you know, the, the the stage manager, you know, says to me, "Oh, by the way." Um, uh, Dylan's in the audience this evening, and I, I said, "Well, I, okay, don't tell Sandy." 
but of course he told Sandy, uh, who who just went to pieces basically yeah. because you know she loved Dylan and, and um, I, I've never seen her so nervous in my life. So so, so she kind of stumbled through the set and, and played way below her best. And uh, I was hoping to, to say hello to Bob at the end of the show, but he kind of slipped quietly away, right. as he should because um, he was a well-known face around the village at that time. So uh, I'm sure he didn't want to be. Uh, scene necessarily well it's nice to hear you've interacted with him before uh i gather you're you're still a, a fan of his oh fantastic yeah and, and, and he's, he's a great example i, I think to, to all of us to keep on on going you know i mean the guy's 80 years old he, he just wrote a couple of fantastic songs um and uh i hope i can do the same and in, in, uh, when, when i if if and when i hit that kind of milestone yeah as we're speaking i just last night finished writing my review of the new bootleg series uh, that covers sort of the uh, 80s, 80 to 85. So he's swimming around. Just so you know, Richard, I love Bob Dylan. I've seen him like 40 times or something since... I, I love him, and I I wrote a master's thesis about him. Like I I'm I'm not mm. I'm not nuts. <laughs> I just want to clarify that as well. I'm not. I, I love him, but I also am, I study, and I, I I just think he's great. So I appreciate that you had this uh, connection with him as well, and uh, and you did end up working with Jeff Tweedy uh, after that um, on a record. Was that because of that tour? Is that where you met? Um, I think it was. I, you, no, that's not true. I think we did a show with Wilco a long time ago. Um, when they were quite a new, a new bound, uh, we did a co-bill with Wilco uh, at the Beacon in New York, uh, and we met them then. Uh, and, and I've kind of seen them here and there over the years. But, uh, I mean, I really like the idea of, of Jeff producing something. Uh, he, he did such a great job on the Mavis Staples record, uh, that, that first one that he mm-hmm. uh, he produced. And I thought, well, that's great. If, if he can do that for Mavis, perhaps he can do something for me as well. And um, and I really enjoyed working with him. He's a lovely guy. I, I, I really love hanging out with him and uh and he has great ideas and great stories and uh yeah. just a, an all-around good guy yeah he's a lovely fellow i've i've interacted mm. with him a few times so i agree and i'm a fan of his as well um you invoked sandy uh, denny there uh, a wondrous vocalist and it brings to mind uh, the fact that I, I feel like you know someone write someone like you writes a memoir about their life and obviously they are going to uh share their story but one of the generous aspects of your book to me is that you're sort of telling other people's stories. Uh, you are bringing to mind, back to mind, uh, people we, that you've lost, friends, colleagues. Was that, uh, did you have a sense of responsibility in that regard? Like I'm, this isn't just about me, it's about these people in my life and how significant they were to music and the world at large. Someone needs to tell this story. Was that on your mind at all? I think, you know, my experience of moving through life was um, who I was moving through life with, um, you know, who was around me, really. Uh, you know, it's not all kind of egotistical, you know, self-obsession or self-reflection, uh, you know, as you, uh, as, you, as you grow through life. Um, you really are very um, influenced and interacting all the time with other people and Sandy was someone very important in my life uh, you know as as were you know Nick Drake and, and John Martin you know mm. uh, stable mates you know people who were on the same label people who you recorded with people mm. you know people you had the same management the same agency um, you know they're, they're you know, very very important people in, in, in your life with whom you, you spend a lot of time you know if you're on the road with someone um, being on the road with Sandy or with Ian Matthews, you know, there's a lot of downtime where you're just chatting. Yeah. Um, inevitably, you know, for 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 a, for a month or two months on end, you know, you're 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 on some tour, and you're on planes together, you're in, you're in buses together, um, you're hanging out backstage together, you know. So, so there's always, um, you know, a lot of your life is lived with other people, and it's important to reflect that. Yeah. Well, in reflecting upon your life and the life you've shared with others with this book, uh, I I would assume you can't help but learn something about yourself as well. I mean, this is a foundational period that you're covering. Mm. Is there anything in particular that you feel like you learned about yourself in completing this project and reflecting upon it now that it's out in the world? I mean, I know that once you release something like this, even to your publisher— you might have that little sense of release of like, oh my God, I, I've just told people stories I've been keeping to myself for most of my life. Do you have a sense of that release? And within what I was saying at the beginning, do you feel like you learned something profound about yourself? Well, I think absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a sense of release, yes. 
sense of trepidation as well because you really are exposing yourself sometimes even more than you would do in a song you know a song is a naked thing yeah. and getting up on stage like as a solo artist for, for instance it is a very naked, naked thing and if you also wrote the song that you're singing then that's that's twice as naked you know yeah. but uh, even that doesn't compare to writing uh, you know an autobiography where, where you really really are bearing your soul uh, and uh, <laughs> inevitably that, that's a little scary because uh, you're throwing it out there and people people you know, really can uh, come up, come up to you and say, "Did you really do that, or did, is that how you feel?" And blah blah blah, and or you know, it exposes you to endless uh, uh, questions. Uh, first of all, um, yeah. But um, I suppose it's a kind of a cathartic thing to having written it and and say, "Okay, that's that." You know, I've, I've done that, and then think, "Well, you know, do I do volume two? Do I move on from there?" Uh, or should I just say that's enough and, and not, I'll go back to being a songwriter? Um, I haven't quite answered that question yet. I don't know. Well, it's curious you invoke that because in the epilogue of the book, you write, the attic is empty now, which to me suggests we may not see further volumes beyond the, the one you cover in this era. Am I misreading that? When you say the attic is empty now, that's the release part. I think, yeah. you know, I've got this out of my system. But does that also in- intimate maybe... You don't have to talk beyond this or right beyond this? Well, there is the basement, of course. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's other rooms. There's other rooms to explore, yes. Yes, I mean, (laughs) the the attic is empty. The basement is jammed with with, with stuff I've I've never looked at at all. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I I mean, certainly when I was writing this, I was not intending to to write anything else. I wasn't thinking this is the first of a series. I I just thought this is a, a, a good time period to cover. Uh, and, and I'll do this, and then, and, and then, I'll, then I see what I'll do. I, I mean, I, I would like to write something else, but it might not be autobiographical. I mean, I, I could write something that's fiction. I could write something that's about music. So um, we'll see. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I'm not, I don't want to pin you to anything. Speaking of soul bearing, I'm curious about the dream section of this book, which I which surprised me at the end of this book. We uh, encounter a section where you just recount some dreams that you've alluded to earlier in the book. Hmm. What prompted that? What prompted you to flesh out those dreams and include them separately at the end? I think that my original intention was to, to weave them through the, the body of the book, uh, to, to have them uh, appear where they are, they are kind of relevant. So, you know, if I'm talking about Keith Richard, then the, the, the dream about Keith Richard is in the same place. Uh, my editors thought it, it really interrupted the flow of the narrative, and, and, and they wanted to ditch them all together. Hmm. And I said, well, you know, can we put them as an appendix? So they said, yes, that's fine. So, so that's really the way we ended up. Perhaps it would have, would have been better to, to have had them in in the body of the text, but but um, it might have been confusing for people. Um, <laughs> but but to me, yeah, you know, it, it, it would have been more like the real experience of the, of the 60s and 70s was, which is kind of partly hallucinatory, you know, so... You're never quite sure what was real and what wasn't real. Yeah. And um, so, so to, dr- to drift from, you know, a realistic narrative into a dream uh, for me would have been perfect because that was really what life was like at that time. Are you someone who generally keeps uh, a journal or a diary and, and documents such things? I wish I had. Uh, that, that would have saved me a lot of trouble if, if I had if I kept a really good journal for all over the time. I, I mean, the, the dreams I, I remember because they're so vivid. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you know, there's, there are certain dreams that are just like like reality anyway. Uh, um, so so I, I remember them so well. Um, I, I didn't have to write those down. I, I might have tidied up the dialogue a little bit, but that's about all. Um, <laughs> I assume we I assume we may have gotten glimpses into other dreams of yours via your songs. Is that a fair statement? Well, I think um, another reason I wanted to put the dreams is because I think uh, you know if a dream is is subconscious, uh, you know a song is certainly semi conscious. So you're kind of feeding into the same area. You know, your creativity is just like really one step away from the subconscious sometimes. Yeah. So I, I thought that, that it would be. Um, instructive if you like for the for the reader to to see the other world going on you know the, the creative world because you know it's hard to say this is how i wrote this song you know this is the process i went through but it's easy just to show a dream and and, and say look at you know the the the, the song is just a, a a millimeter removed from from sleep this yeah, process right. 
So that, that was re- re- really my intention with it was to, to just show, um, you know, w- w- where the creativity um, comes from, if you like. Well, it's very entertaining, so I'm happy with the decision uh, that they to, that oh, they good. were included. <laughs> yeah, very very entertaining. I enjoyed them. At the, it was surprising, but I enjoyed them. It was like a whole other universe opened up, and then it was done. They're not that many dreams, but I, in fact, I will say. I wish there were more. I, I would love to read <laughs> just about some of your dreams. They, they seem very vivid and fascinating. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, in one sense, I thought, well, to hell with this. Uh, ditch the book. I, I'll just do a book of dreams and that'll, that'll be enough. <laughs> but um, the, 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 the trouble with dreams is that is they, they do become repetitive. Yeah. Uh, and if, if I'd included more, then it would be a bit more of the same uh, as uh, one's... Um, dark psyche kind of, kind of bubbles up to the surface uh, the, the same demons appear again and again so, so uh, perhaps uh, it was judicious to, to stop where I stopped <laughs> yeah well it's wonderful it's a, it's a wonderful book uh, you alluded to the fact that you have released a few EPs recently and recently uh, I believe you made the announcement that uh, one of them Serpent's Tears was is now available, uh, I think, across streaming services. Is that right? Yes, it is. It's also available now on uh, actual CD because I, I know some people are allergic to uh, to digital forms and downloads. Uh, but um, we, we now have the actual CD of the last two um, EPs that were okay. released. Okay. Uh, and, yeah, you, you, and if you come to, to, to a show, um, you, you, you can buy them uh, from our merchandise uh, table. Um, and and, and you, you can buy them from my website as well. Now, I just want to get at these a little bit. Uh, what prompted the uh, notion of releasing these uh, things as EPs as as opposed to a, a record? And uh, within that, like what uh, I've been focused quite a bit on Serpent's Tears in the lead up to this conversation. So I've been thinking about it a little bit. Uh, so I'm just wondering about maybe when you wrote these songs. I've been talking to lots of people who have been writing during the pandemic about the pandemic, so to speak, and, you know, issues of loneliness, isolation, lack of connection, these sorts of things. So I guess, uh, yeah, the two the two questions are why EPs as opposed to maybe an LP? And if you can characterize uh, from your perspective what inspired these songs or what they might be so, you know, supposedly about, I'd love to hear mm-hmm. that too. Can you speak to those things? I can try. Um, well, first of all, why EPs? I think EPs, just because um, that seemed to be the number of songs that I had on hand at a time. And I thought, well, I don't want to make a CD because a CD seems too much like a statement hmm. uh, and attracts too much attention, you know, and, and will get reviewed, etc., etc. And it's also something that perhaps I should do with a record company as opposed to just putting it out myself. Hmm. So, so I thought an EP was just a, a, way, a way around that, really. Uh, and um, the original idea was, um, you know, I, I just put it up on Bandcamp. It was also to, to earn money, frankly, because I, I was 18 months without work and, and uh, yeah. the, the coffers were getting low. Um, <laughs> so a um, couple of weeks, and, and um, I think I wrote all the songs during, during lockdown. Um, I didn't want to write songs about lockdown. That just seemed to me really tedious and boring. Yeah, um, yeah. Maybe the songs reflect what lockdown was like, what lockdown was about. I'm sure that's in there somewhere, but it certainly wasn't um, the obvious theme of, theme of the songs. Um, the theme of the songs are all over the place. I mean, it's really yeah. absolutely here, there, and everywhere. So make of that what you will. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I think it make, makes, a, makes a good LP um, uh, when, you, when, you, when you put uh, uh, Serpent's Tears and Bloody Noses, which was the one before, uh, together. You put those two together. And, and it's an interesting acoustic, um, you know, um, home recording, you know, which is where it sounds like. You know, I, I everything. Um, my partner Zara um, uh, sing, sings a little bit as well, which is nice. And... Um, Basically, I'm playing, you know, percussion, bass, you know, anything I can get my hands on. Yeah, but it's it's mostly just acoustic. Well, there are some themes of loss, and it, I, when I think of the big love scene, or when the saints rise out of their graves, or widows walk, there's loss there. Uh, there's loss of people. There's loss of relationships. I couldn't help but wonder if um, these were inspired by stories you've read about others, maybe even what they've been going through, uh, some personal experiences. I don't know, but that's where my mind kind of went, like. There's a lot of death and loss in the air these days, so I just wondered if 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 you were in, inspired or influenced by that, or experienced something even. Yeah, I, I think um, losing 
Losing friends, I mean, not necessarily, you know, to COVID, but, but just losing old friends. I mean, I've lost a couple in the last few years and it's, it's devastating, you know. Um, and when you get to my age, I mean, I'm into my 70s and, um, you know, it happens to you, you know. And if you, you know, if you don't drop dead, then other people do. And it's, it's very disturbing. Um, yeah. So uh, there is that sense of loss, you know. Um, I, I, I just went, went through a, 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 you know, a long and difficult divorce. Hmm. That's another kind of loss, you know, that, that right in there. So um, it, it's been a turbulent time for me anyway. Uh, and um, so uh, l- lots of subject matter anyway to write about. Yeah, I'm very sorry for your loss and hardship. It's none of my business per se, but I appreciate you sharing <laughs> that that's uh, maybe uh, where your emotional state is at, and I appreciate it. Uh, and yeah, I wish you the the best going forward. Uh, I will just, I, I think uh, there are going to be some guitar people who are going to be upset with me at this point for not asking you more about guitar. So I will, <laughs> I'm sure you get asked a lot of questions about your guitar playing. All I really wonder though, uh, we're in a weird age of, for me anyway, as someone who follows music about the kind of prominence of guitar music these days, it seems to be, I can't figure it out. It seemed to be waning. People seem to be like, guitars, that's old-fashioned, and and now it seems to be coming back in vogue. Do you have any thoughts on the guitar? I know it's all you know. I know you're a busy fellow, and you keep yourself busy. You don't maybe pay attention to what other people are talking about. That's my sense from this conversation. Mm. But is your relationship with the guitar changed uh, at all for yourself uh, in recent years or at all since you first picked it up? Not really. I'm, I mean, you know, I do what I do, and it's a very close personal relationship that, that I have with, with my instruments uh, and that hasn't really changed it's it certainly evolved it hasn't really changed hmm. why is the guitar popular and I mean um, I mean I, I, I thought probably the 70s the, the guitar was probably on the way out you know when, when synthesizers came in mm-hmm. and that, that then you had, had kind of synth pop in the 80s and I thought well you know this is the death surely of the guitar and I wasn't sorry about that you know really I, I thought well you know it's, it's become so cliched especially the electric guitar and I thought well I'll just go back to playing acoustic I'll, I'll go back to playing in folk clubs you know I'll, I'll find a living somehow you know I'll concentrate more on being a songwriter yeah. um, but but then the guitar keeps coming back you know um, it, it's just one of those things that, that you know the guitar is, is a portable instrument yeah you, you, you know you can carry you can carry it around with you you, you can take it out at a party you know and, and, and play for people you, you know you can play in your hotel room you, you can you can take it camping um, you know it, it's a very portable thing and I, I think that has really helped to, to maintain its popularity yeah the equivalent you know for keyboard players is the accordion <laughs> and uh, it's hard to look sexy playing the accordion let's face it but, but, but you can just about look sexy playing the guitar <laughs> okay so, um, fair enough so I, I, I think you know for, for, for that reason you know the, the guitar has remained popular um I, th- I think they sell something like three million acoustic guitars a year in america yeah, yeah that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a lot of instruments yeah no it's that, that's huge I, I, I think it's just that, that the thing of it's it's not that hard to play uh, at a basic level you know yeah. uh, it, it's, it's it has that simplicity to it and um you know uh, you can make homemade music with it and then you can plug it in and rock out you know so um and it seems that plugging it in and rocking out has has uh, maintained its uh, allure uh, somehow through the years, yeah. through the decades. Um, I'm, I'm waiting for some big music revolution to happen, <laughs> where, where suddenly you know it's all about the French horn, or it's it's, it's all about the you know the classical harp or something. You know, you know, like people are are, are rushing to shops to buy trombones. So, I mean, it's it's got to happen at some point. Yeah, there'll be just apps. It'll all just be apps uh, at, at some point. I'm sure you won't even have to have anything. Oh uh, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate yeah. I appreciate your thoughts on that. Now, uh, you had alluded to the fact that you've been quite prolific over the last eighteen months uh, working on things. I I often wrap these uh, conversations up by asking people what's next. I'm not exactly sure where to begin, given the litany of things you mentioned. What is kind of next for you, Richard? You're on this tour uh, as we're speaking. Beyond that, do you have plans for releases of, of any sort? Yeah, um, well, I've got this tour, then I've got another UK tour, then I've got another US tour, then there's a gap uh, where maybe I can get in the studio and record with my band, Uh, so so I've got material written for the band, Um, I'd love to go in and do that, that would be fantastic, and I'm not thinking too much beyond that at the moment, uh, because uh, everything is so backed up, Mm. my 2022 is, is all the stuff that I had to move from this year, 
So, you know, my diary is crammed with shows for next year. Mm. Um, so it's going to be, you know, uh, how to how to fit stuff in, really. Um, but but that, that's the next uh, recording plan anyway. Um, hopefully do something with, with, with my with my band. You've been around a while. You've seen lots of things. I assume you have uh, a sense of how things can play out based on the way we're all behaving. Do you, in your heart, feel like we're heading back to any semblance of normalcy sometime soon. I know you have to maybe feel that way as a musician mm-hmm. who wants to tour, but do you feel like that's going to happen uh, in 2022? Is it that going to be a normal year? I think it has to. Mm. I think people are fried um, mm. with uh, lockdowns. But at some point, enough people get vaccinated and then and you say, okay, that's it. That you know, if if you want to mask up for, for the rest of your life, that's fine. If you want to just get, get on with life and, and trust your immune system, that's fine too. Um, I, I think twenty twenty two will be normal. Really, mm. I oh. do. Okay. Well, we'll see. I'm going to hold you to this. This is on the record, by the way. We're all going to find out if you're right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Blame uh, me. Blame me. <laughs> Richard, if people want to learn more about you, your music, your work. I'm hoping you can tell us where to go in terms of, you know, an online destination. I will also say that this beautiful new book, Beeswing, is out via Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill, which is a division of Workman Publishing, and you can learn more about that at algonquin.com. In terms of you and your other pursuits, is there a place you'd like to send them Uh, and a website, social media, these sorts of things? Yeah, sure. Um, my website is, is richardthompson-music.com and you can find me uh, under my own name on, on Facebook. Uh, I'm sure I'm on Instagram and all the other ones as well, but I never look at those. Um, yeah, I'm easy to find. I'm easy to find. You don't engage with any of your social media, Twitter, anything like that? Uh, Twitter, no. Um, the only one I look at is Facebook, really. Oh, okay. And even then, even then, I don't spend too much time. okay fair enough now if there's a song uh, perhaps from one of the recent EPs that we can go out on for people I wonder if you're up for that Richard do you mind choosing one and also uh, maybe telling us why it came to mind okay well um, there's a song called The Fortress uh, which uh, you know it's it's a home recording but I I like the song and the song I think is about arrogance it's it's about um, you, you know someone who Thinks thinks they're great, but but you know the the world crumbles beneath them, and uh, they become utterly uh, deflated and defeated by life. You know that's it. It's it's uh, it's not an original idea, but I think it's a good song. Was it inspired by anyone in particular? <laughs> Ooh, I wouldn't like to say. <laughs> you wouldn't like to say you're leaving us hanging here. Okay. Uh, is this Great. from... Great song. <laughs> it's fair. Leave us hanging. Why not? I think that's uh, that's fair. Okay, so we'll play... Uh, it's from the Bloody Noses EP. This is The Fortress uh, by the legendary and gracious Richard Thompson. Richard, this was a tremendous pleasure for me, a, a deep honor. I thank you for your time, and uh, I hope we speak again someday, and I wish you the best of luck in the future. Thank you, Vish. Thank you so much for the interview. Uh, great pleasure. Thank you.
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. True honor and thrill to get to speak to Richard Thompson on this show. You know, as I was editing that episode, I feel like I, I screwed some stuff up. I mean... He mentions he has this conversation with Bob Dylan, and I don't know, sometimes the line between nosy and curious, I, you know, I, I try not to blur it too much. I should have just said, well, what did you guys talk about? But, you know, then I felt, if he wanted to talk about it, he'd tell me. Maybe he's saving it for his next book, too. Why is he going to waste that anecdote on me, you know? Anyway, otherwise, very happy, and I'm very thankful and grateful to you, Richard Thompson, for appearing on this the 634th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode that you've heard about and you're looking for it, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at vishcreative, or you can follow me directly on Twitter or on Instagram at vishkana. Also, please visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to sustain this show. $6 or more grants you access to exclusive content. And if you're interested in receiving a creative control t-shirt, please message me on Patreon and I'll get you one just as soon as is humanly possible. And while supplies last, I just sent one to, to Whitehorse in the Yukon Territory. So... If that was bound for you, look out. It's on its way. Thanks again to the fine Alberta record retailer Blackbird Music, which you can learn more about and place special orders at by, you know, by their website, of course, blackbird.ca. Well, maybe, maybe you want to order some Richard Thompson records. I don't know. 
blackbird.ca for more info. Also want to thank Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario, for their in-kind support for this show. As always, my dear friend Jim Guthrie loans me some music that he made uh, that I can use on this show, and I urge you all to visit his website, jimguthrie.org, to learn more about Jim and his vast and impressive universe of song. And finally, thank you so much for listening to this episode with the great Richard Thompson. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a, a veteran of the show, thanks for sticking around. Thanks for subscribing to the podcast and maybe telling your friends about the show and suggesting maybe they do the same. Uh, subscribe to the show, follow the show, whatever, and spread the word about it. Otherwise, I'll be back with you very soon. I hope you're doing all right and not stressed out like I am all the time because your kids are in school and there's a pandemic. It'll be fine, I hope. Anyway, talk to you soon. Bye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.